Well, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Justin Logan. I'm the Associate Director of the Foreign Policy Studies Program here at the Cato Institute. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you to our book event today for John Mearsheimer's new book, Why Leaders Lie, The Truth About Lying in International Politics. We have, coincidentally enough, plenty of copies for sale upstairs that you're welcome to pillage uh, after the event today. I'm just going to go ahead and introduce uh, John Mearsheimer and our two discussants, then turn things over to John and then respectively to the discussants. Um, John J. Mearsheimer probably needs no introduction, but I'll venture one nonetheless. He's the R. Wendell Harrison Distinguished Service Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. Uh, in a recent survey of international relations scholars, he came in number four in a listing of scholars whose work has had the greatest influence on the field of international relations in the last 20 years. Uh, so that's a fairly considerable accomplishment, uh, but it shows how different the academy is from the Beltway uh, in many senses. He's the author of several books, including The Tragedy of Great Power Politics, The Israel Lobby in U.S. Foreign Policy, and the aforementioned Why Leaders Lie, the Truth About Lying in International Politics. He graduated from West Point and holds a Ph.D. from Cornell University. I don't know, we didn't decide in order. Does either of the discussants have a strong preference to go first or second? I'll go in my order then. Trevor Thrall is the associate professor at George Mason University in the Department of Public and International Affairs and the director of the graduate program in biodefense. He's the co-editor of a book entitled American Foreign Policy and the Politics of Fear, Threat Inflation Since 9-11, which I, if I remember correctly, is actually cited in John's book. And a forthcoming volume he's the co-editor of, which I think is a question many of us would like to know the answer to, why did the United States invade Iraq? Question mark. Uh, tantalizing subject, indeed. Uh, Trevor holds a PhD from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And the final discussant is Ted Galen Carpenter, who's the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. He's the author of 10 books and about 400 journal articles and scholarly uh, publications. His most recent book was an edited volume entitled Smart Power Toward a Prudent Foreign Policy for America. About that volume, I should probably mention that it was published before smart power became a fad phrase here in Washington, so Ted was in favor of smart power before it became dumb. Uh, he holds a PhD in diplomatic history from the University of Texas. Uh, I should just mention uh, uh, John Mearsheimer holds perhaps the dubious distinction of being the most patient uh, speaker at a book forum here at Cato. He was held up for roughly four hours delayed at O'Hare Inter International Airport coming here to speak to us today. So it's not without some anxiety that we've uh, waited to hear his remarks, but we're very glad to have him here. John Mearsheimer. Thank you for the kind introduction, Justin. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be here. I certainly appreciate all of you coming out on this hot day to hear me speak. Uh, I want to start off by just telling you how I got interested in this subject. Sometime in the spring of 2003, Serge Maiman, who was then working for the New York Times, uh, he now runs the editorial page of the International Herald Tribune, but at that point in time he was working for the New York Times and he was writing a piece for the Sunday Review, uh, Week in Review section, uh, on international lying. 
And he called me on the phone. I had never met him or spoken to him in my life. And he said, I'm writing this piece for the Sunday paper. And for some reason, your name popped into my head. So he said, I decided to call you. So he said, what do you know about international lying? So I said, the truth is, I know nothing about international lying. And as I said, as I'm racing through my brain here, looking for possible sources, I can't think of anything that's been written on the subject. So I said, why don't you tell me what you've been thinking about it, and I'll bounce off your ideas. And we talked for about an hour. It was a fascinating conversation because, again, I didn't know much about it or hadn't thought much about it at all beforehand. Uh, and afterwards, I wrote a memo for the record, uh, stuck it in my files, and then about six months later, I was asked to give a talk at MIT on a subject of my choosing, and I decided to pull out my notes from that conversation with Serge Maiman and give a talk. I then gave a number of subsequent talks on the subject, and what I always discovered was that people were fascinated with the issue. And they just love to talk about it. And many people wrote me unsolicited emails uh, afterwards. In fact, there are a number of people I thank in the book who I never met before. And I have no who, idea who they are. But it just showed you how much attraction uh, there was to this subject. Uh, and there was special attraction to one of my findings, which I'll talk about in due course, which is that there's not much lying in international politics. Uh, most people did not want to believe that. I was kind of surprised at how jaded most people were when I reported that finding. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, people went back and forth with me on that issue often, and many times in email correspondence. Let me proceed by uh, giving you some definitions to start with, uh, then talking about the different kinds of lies that I think exist in international politics. I think it's important to categorize the kinds of lying. Then let me report to you my three main findings, uh, and finally talk a little bit about the downside of lying. To start with the definitions, first of all, I'm talking about what I call strategic lies, not selfish lies. These are lies that leaders tell for what they think is the national interest. I'm going to make the argument at a number of points that the Bush administration told a handful of lies in the run-up to the Iraq war. I do not believe that President Bush and his lieutenants told those lies for selfish reasons. I think they did it because they thought it was in the American national interest to take us to war against Saddam Hussein and bring his regime down. So I'm talking about lies that are done in the service of the national interest. And one of the main arguments that I'm making here is that leaders lie for good strategic reasons, and sometimes it makes good sense to lie. This brings me to my second definitional point, and that is that I'm talking about lying from a purely utilitarian point of view. I'm not considering the moral dimensions. Uh, an absolutist like Kant or an absolutist like Augustine would be horrified by my presentation because it's purely utilitarian in nature. But that's the way it is. And this is not to say that someone, one of you maybe, wouldn't want to go out and examine this whole issue from an absolutist perspective. But I'm looking at it from a utilitarian perspective. 
It's also important to define very clearly what you mean by lying. I discover that a lot of people say that people lie all the time, leaders lie all the time. But then when you ask them what they mean by lying, it's clear that they have a very loose definition of that concept. And given that loose definition, yes, there is a lot of lying. But I'm using what I think is a commonplace definition among students of the subject. Um, but before I say exactly what lying is, let me say that I believe that there are sort of two broad categories to start with. One is deception, and the other is truth-telling. And lying is a form of deception. And I'm going to tell you a bit more about this in a second, but I think there are three forms of deception, all of which contrast, of course, with truth-telling. The three forms of deception are lying, spinning, and concealment. Okay, truth-telling is where an individual goes to great lengths to tell what he or she thinks are the facts of the story as best he or she can. Uh, if you're in a courtroom and you're called to testify and you're put under oath, you're sworn to tell the truth. And what you do, uh, at least hopefully what you do, is you tell whoever is asking you questions what you think the truth is. That's what truth-telling is all about. Deception is where you don't tell the whole truth. Uh, you actually try to deceive. And in fact, we engage in deception all the time in our everyday life. Uh, and it's in large part because we spin all the time. Spinning is where you tell stories that emphasize the positive aspects and de-emphasize or even ignore the negative aspects. If President Obama were up here and you were to ask him, how's the American economy doing these days and what's it look like for the next 10 years, he'd be spinning like crazy. And if you had Congressman Boehner up here and asked him the same question, he'd be spinning like crazy. Uh, he wouldn't give President Obama any credit. And of course, President Obama would pay hardly any attention to the negative facts about the economy. That's what spinning is all about. When a boy and a girl meet and the boy tries to pick up the girl, the girl tries to pick up the boy, right? They engage in spinning. You've all prepared resumes or vitas as we call them in academia, right? For those of you who've been in jail before, you don't put that up in bright lights on your vita, right? You tell your prospective employer all these wonderful things about yourself. That's spinning. And we engage in that all the time. Then there's hiding. Hiding is where you just simply uh, don't report something. My favorite example of hiding is in the run-up to the Iraq war. Uh, the Bush administration went to enormous lengths to make the argument that there was a link between Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein. But it turned out that they had secretly uh, tortured and debriefed uh, 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 Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Abu Zubaydad, and both of them had told the interrogators independently that there was no link whatsoever between Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden. In fact, they hated each other's guts. But of course, the Bush administration did not tell us that. We didn't find out about it until after March 19, 2003. That's not lying. That's hiding. And of course, militaries engage in this kind of behavior all the time because militaries are bent on disguising particular capabilities, disguising particular strategies, and so forth and so on. So the two forms of deception that I've described so far are one, spinning, 
and two, hiding. The third is lying. And lying can take two forms. One form is where you say to somebody uh, something that is not true. You know it's not true, but you say it anyway. Uh, when Bill Clinton lied about having sex with Monica Lewinsky, he was consciously saying something that was not true. There's another form of lying, and for those of us who have children, we're quite familiar with this. It's where the children never say anything explicitly that is a lie, but they present you with a number of storylines or facts that when all added together are designed to lead you in the wrong direction or to the wrong conclusion. And again, to give you an example of that, having to do with the run-up to the Iraq war, as you know, at the time of the invasion, March 2003, over half of the American people believed that Saddam Hussein was in part responsible for what happened on September 11th, when indeed there was zero evidence that he had anything to do with September 11th. The reason that over half of the American people believed Saddam Hussein was involved with September 11th was because the Bush administration and many of its supporters in the media went to enormous lengths to use rhetoric that implied very clearly that he was involved in September 11th. That's a second form of lying. So what you see here is you have deception versus truth-telling. And when you talk about deception, you have three kinds. Hiding, spinning, which is very commonplace, and, uh, and lying. Now, when I began to think about this subject, I thought it would make a lot of sense to see if I could categorize the kinds of lies uh, that exist in international politics. And I came up with a rather simple template that I think is quite comprehensive. There may be a few lies out there that don't fit in any of these five boxes, uh, but not many people have challenged me on this, so I'm quite confident that the categories are pretty good. Uh, the first is what I call interstate lying. The second is fear-mongering. The third is strategic cover-ups. Fourth is nationalist myth-making. And the fifth is liberal lies. And I'll lay each one of these out for you briefly and then give you one example. And of course, I could give many examples, but I won't do that. First is interstate line, and this is what I was initially interested in. This is where the leader of one state tells a lie to a foreign audience. That foreign audience can be another set of leaders, another leader, it can be uh, another public, uh, but you're lying to a foreign audience. And a really good example, I think, of a interstate lie that made good strategic sense has to do with our deterrence policy in Europe during the Cold War. There was a big question, and most of you younger people in the audience will not remember this, there was a big question at the time as to whether or not the United States would use nuclear weapons first to defend Germany should the Soviets overrun Germany. Because why if Germany, which was a couple thousand miles away from the United States and actually separated from us by a giant moat, be so strategically important that we would risk 
getting vaporized to prevent it from being conquered by the Soviet Union. Our threat to use nukes was not very credible. Anyway, Robert McNamara, who was Secretary of Defense in the early 60s, and Henry Kissinger, who of course was later Secretary of State and National Security Advisor in the Nixon and Ford administrations, both of them maintained when they were in important policy positions that they would definitely use nuclear weapons to defend Europe. There was no question about it. That was our responsibility. However, in later years, they admitted that they would not have used nuclear weapons to defend Europe, which of course was the smart thing to do. By the way, it was the smart thing to do to say you would use nuclear weapons, but in the event, it would have been the smart thing not to use them. But in effect, they were lying when they were in important policy positions, because for purposes of deterring the Soviet Union from attacking into Germany, it made eminently good sense to make the Germans think that if they attacked, there was a serious possibility that it would escalate to the nuclear level. That's an interstate lie, and in my opinion, a very smart lie. Then there's the second category, and I'll talk a lot about this as we go on. Second category of lying, which is fear-mongering. And fear-mongering is really all about threat inflation. It's where leaders, especially American presidents, tell the American people that there's a threat out there that is really much worse than most people believe. President Bush and his lieutenants engaged in fear-mongering in the run-up to the Iraq war. Fear-mongering, as you surely can tell, involves lying to your own public, not lying to a foreign audience. Interstate lies, the first category of lies, involve lying to another country. The second kind of lie that I'm talking about, which is fear-mongering, involves lying to your own people. And by the way, we have a rich history in the United States of presidents lying to the American people. President Bush was part of a rich tradition. For anyone who has any doubt on this, you should read Eric Alterman's book on presidential lying. It's actually a very comprehensive and fascinating book, but deeply depressing. <laughs> deeply depressing because it's not very comfortable to know that your leaders lie as often as they do. But President Franklin D. Roosevelt, for example, lied about the Greer incident in August 1941 for the purposes of trying to get us involved in World War II. President Roosevelt was working overtime to get us involved in World War II. And there was a naval incident in the Atlantic that he lied about because he thought it would help us get us into the war against uh, Nazi Germany. And when I was young, there was the famous Gulf of Tonkin incident in August 1964, where Lyndon Johnson, Robert McNamara, and company lied about a naval incident uh, off the coast of Vietnam, all for the purposes of getting a resolution from Congress that would basically be a blank check to fight the war in Vietnam. And President Bush, of course, told, I think, four lies in the run-up to the Iraq war. That's fear-mongering. Third kind of line is strategic cover-ups. Strategic cover-ups work in two ways. One is sometimes you just have to cover up a, uh, a controversial policy because you can't let the American people or a foreign audience know what you're doing. Uh, another form of cover-up is when you're trying to cover up 
for an incompetent general or a military disaster that you don't want the other side to know about or your own people to know about because it will have bad strategic consequences. Okay, But let me give you my favorite example of a strategic cover-up, which is, I think, the best example I know of of what Plato called a noble lie. And this was the lie that President Kennedy told to end the Cuban Missile Crisis. Kennedy thought he had ended the Cuban Missile Crisis by simply getting Khrushchev to take the Soviet missiles out of Cuba. But at the last moment, Khrushchev said to Kennedy, I'll only agree to a deal if you take the equivalent missiles, which are the American Jupiter missiles that are in Turkey, out of Turkey. Now, Kennedy, before the Cuban Missile Crisis, had told the Pentagon to get the Jupiter missiles out of Turkey. We didn't want the Jupiter missiles in Turkey. So from a purely strategic point of view, Kennedy had no problems with the deal. But he believed that the deal would have collapsed if the American people found out about it, the Europeans found out about it, and especially if the Turks found out about it, because we would look weak-kneed. What people demanded at the time was that the Soviets get their missiles out of Cuba, period, end of the deal. The idea that Kennedy was going to perform a quid pro quo would have caused all sorts of problems for sealing the deal. So Kennedy told Nikita Khrushchev, number one, you cannot say that there is a deal, but there is a deal. We'll get the Jupiters out, but you cannot say that. He said, furthermore, journalists here in the United States will smell the deal. And they will ask us about the deal. And we will lie. And you should understand, we are lying. And of course, that's exactly what happened. And I think that was a noble lie. Because that crisis brought us as close as any other to a general thermonuclear war. And given that a general thermonuclear war would not be a good thing, it was very good that Kennedy ended it the way he did, even if it required telling a lie. That's a strategic cover-up, and I contrast that with fear-mongering of the sort that President Roosevelt, President Johnson, President Bush employed to get us into those various wars I talked about, and contrast that with interstate lying. Final two kinds of lies are nationalist myths uh, and liberal lies. I'll give you an example of a nationalist myth. Uh, in 1948, when the State of Israel was created, there was absolutely no way that you could create a Jewish state uh, with a majority population without ethnically cleansing the Palestinians. And the Zionists up till May 48 and the Israelis after May 48 ethnically cleansed the Palestinians. Uh, and it was absolutely horrible what they did. And there was no way they could create a Jewish state without doing it. Common sense tells you that, and we now have abundant historical evidence that that's what happened. Of course, the Israelis did not want others outside of Israel, and even inside of Israel, to know that that's what happened. So they spun a story that's basically a lie that said the leaders of the various Arab countries surrounding Israel told the Palestinians to leave and they would then drive the Jews into the sea, and the Palestinians would be allowed to come back. This is not true. It's not what happened. But it was a nationalist myth that the Israelis created. States create myths all the time about themselves 
Israel is not an exception here. It's the rule, not an exception. States create myths because states and their publics want to believe that they're the good guys and the other side is the bad guys. So you get these nationalist myths. What's interesting about nationalist myths, and I say this in the book, is that it's actually hard to qualify them as lies in most cases because most people believe they're true. If you talk to most supporters of Israel in this country about what happened in 1948, they will tell you the myth, but they think it's true. But because they think it's true, it's not a lie. Final category of lying is what I call liberalize. As you all know, as good Americans, we live in a country and in a world where we have all these liberal norms. And states are supposed to obey those liberal norms. And if they don't, they usually try to come up with stories that are not true to make it look like they really did obey the liberal norms when, in fact, they didn't. Uh, to give you one example of this, uh, during World War II, the British decided to launch an area bombing campaign against Germany that was designed to murder huge numbers of German civilians. That was what the basic policy was. They were not going after military targets. They were not going after economic targets. They were going after the civilian population. The infamous bomber Harris was in charge. Now, the British did not want to admit that they had an air policy that was designed to murder large numbers of German civilians, because you're not supposed to do that. You've all read your just war theory. You know about the laws of war. That's not acceptable. So what did the British do? They lied. They said that they were going after military targets, and they were not purposely aiming at civilian areas, when indeed they were. That's a liberal lie not altogether that different from nationalist myths. So those are the five categories of lies that I came across in the study. Now, what about my main findings? I have three main findings. First is that to my amazement, and as I said to you before, to the amazement of most people I've talked to on this subject, there's not much international lying. I had to work very hard to find all of the examples in that book. And despite the fact that lots of people who I've run into think there's much evidence of international lying, they were not able to provide me with additional evidence. So not much international lying. And I'll tell you why in due course. My second main finding is that there's not much interstate lying, but there is a lot of lying by leaders to their own publics. I was actually shocked to find that you can't find too many examples of interstate lying, but you can find lots of evidence of leaders lying to their own publics. And then finally, I found that lying is more likely in democracies than it is in non-democracies. Now, before I unpack the logics, let me just tell you the story that I start the book with. As uh, you all remember, after the Iraq War, when we didn't find any WMDs, we began to try to determine 
how it could be that we were so completely wrong. And there was this rather famous report that was written called the Dolfer Report. And the conclusion of the Dolfer Report is that Saddam Hussein basically lied to us. In other words, the reason that we thought there was WMD and there really wasn't was because he bamboozled us. Or to put it in social science speak, he bluffed, right? The argument is that Saddam, for deterrence purposes, vis-a-vis -vis not only the United States but Iran, wanted to go to great lengths to convince those countries that he had WMD, even though he did not have WMD. That's what the Dolfer Report says. That's not true. There's no evidence in the Dolfer Report, and my friend, the historian Mark Trachtenberg, who didn't believe me when I told him this, uh, has queried the Dolfer people and used the Freedom of Information Act to try and get the backup evidence to support what's in the Dolfer Report. But there is no Dolfer. There is no evidence to back up the assertions in the Dolfer Report. Saddam did not lie to us. In fact, Saddam told us the truth. Saddam said, I don't have WMD, and he didn't have WMD. You know who lied? The Bush administration lied. They told four lies, as I said to you before, in the run-up to the Iraq War, one of which involved this very issue. Now, I find this hardly surprising. Because again, as I said to you, one of the main conclusions in the book is that there's not much evidence of states lying to each other, Saddam lying to us, and there's lots of evidence of leaders lying to their own publics, George Bush and his lieutenants lying to the American public. Now, this raises the fascinating question, why? Why is this the case? And let me lay out the logics for you, and I think when I do it, it'll make good sense. First of all, with regard to interstate lying, when you're talking about security issues or what we sometimes call high politics, there's not much lying because there's not much trust. One of the key points that you want to keep firmly emblazoned in your frontal lobes is that lying works best when there's trust. Because when there's trust, you're open to being bamboozled. If you don't trust the other side, it's very hard to trick them, right? Just think about the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union. Neither side trusted the other. Remember Ronald Reagan's very famous phrase, trust but verify. What Reagan was saying is we're not going to trust and we want to verify it. And of course, the Soviets behaved the same way. So when you're talking about high politics, there's just not a lot of trust. Let me just shift down to domestic politics. When you're talking about domestic politics, when you talk about leaders lying to their own publics, there's always going to be trust between the people and their leaders. That's not to say every person is going to trust his or her leader, but to some extent, you just don't have much choice. I like to tell the story how in the run-up to the Iraq war, and as some people here know, like Justin, I was adamantly opposed to the Iraq war and outspoken on the Iraq war. I give that to you as background for what I'm going to say. Uh, I heard Scott Ritter, the weapons inspector, talk in Boston. 
And Scott Ritter said that uh, Saddam doesn't have any WMD, and then he made the case. And after listening to Ritter talk, I, I was convinced Ritter was right. Uh, then a couple weeks later, I can't remember exactly how long, uh, I heard Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld say, we know that they have WMD because we know where they are. And I said to myself, he wouldn't say that if it wasn't true, right? He's the Secretary of Defense. I mean, I went to West Point. I grew up in a relatively conservative family. He's the Secretary of Defense. I believed him. I just, so I stopped making the Ritter argument to people, and I behaved as if they had WMD. I didn't think the threat was still that serious, but I was then quite sure they did have WMD because I trusted Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld. And I think a lot of other people trusted the leadership at the time just as well. And whenever there's trust, you're open to being bamboozled. J.W. Fulbright, by the way, was a very powerful senator from Arkansas, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, was bamboozled in the Gulf of Tonkin uh, days by LBJ. It was an old friend of his because he trusted LBJ. After the fact, he said, I'll never trust the government again, right? He said, I didn't think that anybody would lie to me like that. So you see the importance of trust. So the reason you don't have much interstate line when high politics is involved is because they're is not a lot of trust. And the reason you have more line when you're talking about leaders in their publics is because you have trust. Now, I want to add one amendment to that argument. When you're talking about interstate lying, uh, I focused mainly on high politics. But there's the realm of low politics, which is where you're dealing with, let's say, economic issues and environmental issues, where the stakes are not very high. So if you get bamboozled, you get snookered, it's not that big a deal. Now, I expected to find an abundance of evidence of lying in the realm of low politics. And let me unpack this a bit more. Is some of you know, and you younger people will all get to know, when you buy a house or you buy a car from somebody else, you can lie about what economists call your reservation price. In other words, if I'm going to buy a house from one of you, I can say I won't pay more than $400,000 when I know I'll actually go up to four fifty. And you can say, I won't sell it for less than 500 when you know you'll come down to 450 That's called lying about your reservation price. And by the way, some people say it's really not lying because everybody who's in the game knows that the other side might be lying. And therefore, it's not really lying. I think it is lying, given my definition. But there's lots of lying about reservation price. I've done it many times. I've told lots of lies in the process of selling houses and cars or buying houses and cars, okay? Now, back in international politics, when you're dealing with low politics, not security issues, security issues you don't expect much trust, right? But when you're talking about low politics, where the stakes are not very high if you get bamboozled, you would expect to see lying in tariff negotiations, right? In all sorts of economic dealings. 
But it's quite remarkable. There's even less lying in the realm of low politics than there is in the realm of high politics. Andy Moravchik, who teaches at Princeton University, is one of the foremost experts in um, the country on the building of the European community, eventually the European Union, over time, and knows the history of all the deals that went into creating the EU. When he heard about my book and uh, he and I talked about it, it was like mana from heaven for him because he said, you know, when I went into studying this subject, I expected to find lots of evidence of European leaders lying to each other as they put together the deals, lying about reservation price, right? He said, I cannot find any evidence of lying. I looked high and low for evidence of lying at the level of low politics, and I finally found one example. Right, which is that the Greeks, this will not surprise you, <laughs> lied about their debt in the late 1990s for purposes of getting into the Eurozone. Uh, but, but anyway, so, so I'm, I'm, the point I'm making to you is that I don't see much interstate line in terms of high politics, which is easy to explain because of the trust argument, but I also don't see it in terms of low politics. And there my explanation is, you're wondering why there's not more line involving re reservation prices. The payoffs are not very great, and it's the shadow of the future. It's the fact that if you're putting together the European Union, you're going to be doing deals for years and years and years to come. Lying and bamboozling somebody and sort of poisoning the waters makes no sense. So I think that's the causal logic that explains why you don't get lying there. Uh, few words about democracies. The reason democracies are uh, uh, more prone to lying is very straightforward. Leaders in a democracy have to explain to their publics why they're pursuing particular policies in ways that leaders who are dictators or autocrats do not have to explain to their people what they're doing. There's just one heck of a lot more accountability in a democratic system. George Bush just can't decide, I'm going to take the country to war against Iraq and go off and do it. He's got to get support from Congress. He's got to have a significant amount of support from the American people. It's very different for an autocratic leader. Saddam did not have to get support from the Iraqi people in 1980 when he initiated a war against Iran, or in August of 1990 when he invaded Kuwait. So therefore, it's in democracies that you're more likely to see lying, and you're likely to see lots of lying to your own people. To take this one step further and put more of an American twist on it, I think the countries that are most likely to tell lies and most likely to tell lies to their own people are democracies that fight lots of wars of choice at great distances. The United States fights wars of choice. The Iraq war was a war of choice. Saddam did not attack us. You can argue World War II was not a war of choice. We were attacked at Pearl Harbor. Since then, we have fought a large number of wars of choice. And when you have to fight wars of choice, 
and you have to fight wars at great distances where the American people sense that we're not that vulnerable. Remember, we have no countries in this hemisphere that could possibly be called threatening. And on our western border and on our eastern border, all we have are fish. So we have Canadians, Mexicans, and fish. <laughs> and we've got thousands of nuclear warheads. And we're running all over the world fighting wars of choice. And it's a democracy. Do expect a lot of lying in that context. And this is why Eric Alterman will at some point in his life have to write volume two. <laughs> Let me conclude by just saying a few words about the downside of lying. Pretty much up to now and in most of the book, I talk about the strategic rationales for telling lies. And remember, I made the argument that Kissinger and McNamara uh, and, and Johnson, Roosevelt, and Bush all told those lies for what they thought was the American national interest. They were not doing it for selfish reasons. We can argue in some cases they were foolish, but they were doing it for what they thought was the American national interest. Nevertheless, there is a downside to lying, and you want to think about this. The downside can have a domestic dimension and it can have an international dimension. The domestic dimension is what I call uh, uh, blowback. And the international dimension is what I call backfiring. Now, let me just talk about both of them in the context of fear-mongering. And let me focus on fear-mongering because it's what the Americans do a lot of, and it shows you what the danger is to the United States of international lying. Just with regard to blowback, if you engage in fear-mongering, if you're an American president and you think you have to lie to the American people to take them to war, you're basically saying you don't have much faith in the American people. You're basically saying they're incapable of making the right decision if you give them the truth. And therefore, you have to deceive them to get them to do the right thing. That's really what's going on here. You have to deceive the American people because otherwise they won't do the right thing. This is what Roosevelt was thinking. Roosevelt was dealing with isolationist America. He wanted to desperately get into the war. He said, not in these words, obviously, but this is effectively what he was saying to himself. The American people are dumb cuffs. I've got to bamboozle them. I've got to trick them into this war. Okay. If you reach that conclusion about the American people, it's not a big leap before you're thinking the same way when it comes to domestic politics and domestic policy issues as well. So anytime a leader engages in fear-mongering, there's a real danger that his or her thinking about how to deal with the American people will end up dealing with a larger number of issues. So you get a real problem with blowback. And any time you have a culture of dishonesty, a culture of deceit in a particular country, be it the United States or France, you pick the country, uh, you're asking for really big trouble. So lying has a real downside in terms of blowback. It also has a real downside, this is the international dimension, in terms of backfiring. And the reason is that if a president can't convince the American people to go to war by telling the American people the truth, 
there is at least a reasonable chance that the reason the president cannot convince the public is because the president is wrong and the public is right. Now, it may be the case, and I think this is true in Roosevelt's case, right? I think Roosevelt was right and the public was wrong. But in the case of Johnson and in the case of Bush, the public was right and the president was wrong. And the end result is that both of those wars, the Vietnam War and the Iraq War, eventually went south and backfired and caused enormous damage for the United States of America. So my final point, my bottom line here, is that you want to keep in mind that there is a very powerful tendency built into this country, the United States of America, to engage in fear-mongering. And fear-mongering has significant potential for causing blowback and for causing backfire. And that means that as long as we continue this remarkably ambitious foreign policy that we seem to be addicted to in the years ahead, you can expect our leaders to be doing at least some line and for that to have some serious negative consequences. Thank you. Fantastic. Uh, Dustin, thanks for the invitation. Uh, glad to be here and glad everyone could brave the heat. I walked five blocks from Metro Center and just about melted, so I'm <laughs> feeling a little better now. Um, <clears throat> this is a fantastic book on a topic that, uh, as John points out in his introduction, has not gotten a lot of sustained attention from IR scholars over the past, I don't know, 40 years or whatever. And the absence of the scholarship is a little bit mysterious to me, uh, especially considering the home front. Um, given how important lying has actually been to all the major U.S. foreign policy, you know, uh, moments since World War II. Um, but I think since Vietnam and with the rise of television and certainly more uh, modern communications technologies, um, the government's strategy for managing the media and influencing public opinion has become sort of a boom business for the political communications set. And I, my sense is that that is uh, something that's um, emerging and gaining steam within the IR community. And I think John's book is going to pave the way for a lot more work in the area, which is a good thing. Uh, as someone who studies threat inflation, um, I, I really enjoyed this book. And it prompted me to ask three questions. And my contribution today will be to take a brief uh, stab at these questions. The first is, how much lying do presidents do to the American public? How common uh, is fear-mongering, uh, spin, concealing, and so on? And um, I, I thought John offered some very thoughtful hypotheses in the book about the conditions under which leaders are more likely to lie. Um, I think, uh, unlike his last two minutes, the book undersells maybe just how often. I, I, I think, simply put, the conditions hold all the time, uh, and that uh, fear-mongering, spin, and conce concealing are all fundamental components of U.S. foreign policy making on, on a daily basis. Uh, and the reason for that, and I think I might differ a little bit, uh, from John here, uh, is really that the U.S. political system makes it very difficult to win arguments, even arguments where you're right, uh, and thus provides this constant incentive for, to exaggerate, spin, lie, and so on. And there are four basic reasons for this. First, the two-party system provides an electoral incentive for the party out of power to oppose policy ideas even when they're good ones. Right? Um, and so it's no accident to me that almost all the important uh, episodes of fear-mongering and strategic cover-ups since World War II have had their origin in party conflict. They're, they weren't just random 
you know, decisions to uh, fearmonger or, or so on, right? And because the mass public tends to follow elite cues on foreign policy, when the parties are split on a policy, the public will wind up being split as well. And at that point, no amount of logical argument is going to win the day. And so a president who really wants to win is left with the option between doing something on the sly or fearmongering to build up a case, right? The second reason is closely related to the first, and that is that the American public also happens to be pretty evenly divided between hawk and dove, conservative and liberal, uh, Republican, Democrat, and so on, right? And the difficulty of winning a majority opinion is sort of therefore baked into the body politic. Um, the first thing here is that this reinforces the party, you know, electoral competition, but it also makes it very difficult for presidents to go public, in Sam Cornell's phrase, to go around Congress directly to the people. Uh, so a conservative president trying to drum up support for illegal immigration as a security threat is likely to do just about as well as a liberal president trying to drum up support for climate change as a security threat. Um, so again, the temptation comes. If, if I exaggerate, maybe I can woo at least some of the people in the, in the middle over to my side for just long enough to get something done. The third reason that it's hard to build support for foreign policy in the United States is because the public simply doesn't care very much about it, pays almost no attention to it. Um, and this is especially true, as John points out, for threats that are far away, threats that are complicated, hard to understand, um, and threats that are going to emerge only in the very long run, a time which no one cares about yet. Right? The public, at its best, has about attention for one foreign policy issue at a time. And even then, nothing gets much sustained attention uh, short of an actual war or an impending war. So there again, a president who feels an urgent need to get people worried about an Iranian nuclear weapon or the security implications of climate change uh, is going to feel the pressure to do something dramatic or do something on the sly to get things moving. And finally, um, as Max Weber noted, uh, secrecy is the fighting posture of the bureaucracy. Um, and the reason is autonomy. Right? Presidents don't just want approval for their policies, uh, permission. They also want to have as much freedom of action to carry out those policies in the way they see uh, best. Right? And the best way to ensure freedom of action, as all my children know, is not to tell your parents what you're up to in the first place. Right? Um, and of course, to lie and, and cover up if they come sniffing around. Once presidents ask for permission, it's too late for full autonomy, right? You've given up some of the power to shape that policy to the Congress and to the people. And to the extent that you're worried about that having negative consequences for your policy, you have an incentive to do stuff on your own or to cover up what you're doing, right? So taken together, I think these things provide uh, an incentive structure that strongly encourages ambitious presidents to first conceal everything they can and second to spin, exaggerate, or lie about what they must, right? All right, so second question then is, um, how bad are the consequences of all this lying? Sounds like we're doing a lot of it. Um, how bad are the consequences? And I, um, you know, John offered a lengthy list of the potential pitfalls and perils of lying to your own public, all the way from degrading the marketplace of ideas um, and hurting the policymaking process to undermining, in the worst case, the rule of law and people's faith in democratic institutions. And I agree with all of those uh, observations. And when we think of specific cases, and I think of Vietnam a lot, all, you know, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon, all, all three of them, uh, I think you have to acknowledge that lying, covering up, and so on has had some pretty serious consequences. Um, but I think seen from a broader perspective, um, maybe this is a little more optimistic, uh, I think the American political system is actually fairly resilient and fearmonger proof. Um, and just as in the interstate case, the higher the politics, the less likely a lie is to work, 
I think the very things that drive presidents to want to lie are the very things that make it very difficult, right? The fact that it's hard to win a debate both drives you to want to lie, but also makes it difficult to win when you, even if you do lie. Um, I think it is true that you can lie more easily to your own public than to others because there's some trust in the system. But I personally don't think that trust extends all that far. Um, the two-party system and the distribution between liberal and conservative among the public uh, mean that it's very difficult for a president to move the needle, the opinion needle, very much on almost any issue, foreign or domestic, uh, under almost any circumstances that you care to name. Um, a lot, you know, was made of Bush's success in inflating the threat before the run-up to Iraq. And, you know, I think, on the other hand, that the opinion polls show that he was only able to pull together a fleeting majority, and only then, it was composed mostly of people who would have supported the war anyway, even if he hadn't lied. All he would have done is had to beat the drums, and pretty much all the people who support it would have. His highest days of support were during the time when we were just about to go to war, had just gone to war. I think that was mostly the rally effect. And all of that, the majority support evaporated essentially as soon as the ground war was done. Right? I think overall, uh, there are a lot more unsuccessful efforts to fearmonger, threat inflate, and so on than there are successful efforts. And that's not to say that there aren't some very important exceptions. But overall, because of the two-party system, the electoral system that allows us to retrospectively punish egregious liars and, frankly, unsuccessful liars, um, I think we, the, the scamming gets kept in a somewhat narrower set of boundaries than it does in other, some other systems. And so the final question um, that actually, to me, turned out to be the most interesting one prompted by the book was, um, when should leaders lie? Right? I mean, there are tons of great examples of lying in this book. And as I read it, I kept saying, was that a good lie? Was that a good lie? Would I have lied in that situation? Hmm. Right? Um, given the moral implications, which you know, we don't want to talk about, right? but obviously there are some, um, plus, I mean, these people elected you after all, and now you're going to lie to them, right? Um, plus the laundry list of potential negative consequences, it seems like you know, if, if you trust the president at all, he probably takes the decision to lie pretty seriously. right? Um, and I know if I were president, I would want to be able to turn to some kind of handy guidebook uh, for advice. Uh, but since uh, St. Augustine's uh, great work on lying is way beyond my high school Latin, um, I think the guidebook needs to be in English. Uh, and so in that vein, I, I offer to you the very rough draft of Just Lies Doctrine uh, for your consideration. As its more famous cousin does, uh, Just Lies Doctrine begins with just cause. Uh, I think presidents should probably only lie in self-defense. Uh, of the nation, and not to help them engage in preventive wars, wars of choice, or monkeying around in the affairs of other nations. Right? Uh, presidents then must also exercise right intention and proportionality, seeking to lie and cover up only in the service of the national good, and to not allow cover-ups or lies to extend beyond the boundary of the mission uh, that they intended, right? especially, especially not to include lying about domestic policy issues, budgets, and so on, uh, or illegal activities that don't have directly to do with carrying out the mission, and certainly, as John points out, not for personal gain, right, or to save people's skin when they've done things wrong. But finally, and I think actually most importantly, presidents should only lie and cover up as a last resort, right? just as with just war doctrine. This should be the last thing on your list of things to try. You should try everything else first. Because as John very wisely points out in the book, if you're having trouble convincing a majority of the public to do something, it might just be because it's a really bad idea. Thanks.
One of the great disadvantages in following uh, two knowledgeable speakers is that there's not a tremendous amount of fresh material to cover. So my presentation is going to be relatively brief. Um, when I first saw the title of John's book, I had to suppress the snarky thought, why leaders lie? Because they can. <laughs> And I think he does an excellent job in exploring this issue in a very sophisticated way. Uh, it is a, an intriguing and thought-provoking and eminently readable book. Uh, that's not to say I don't have a few quibbles. I don't think I've ever read anything, including what I've written, where I don't have some quibbles. Uh, one possible area of disagreement, at least, is with his thesis that lying is, especially in interstate relations, is relatively uncommon, surprisingly uncommon. In part, I think he reaches that conclusion because of an excessively tight definition of lying. He makes that distinction, of course, between outright lies on the one hand and spinning or concealment hiding on the other. And certainly there are appropriate distinctions between those concepts. But it's also true that there are not sharp lines of demarcation. That is to say, at some point, concealment becomes the functional equivalent of an outright lie. And taken to an extreme, spinning can do much the same thing. And if you apply that somewhat looser standard, I think we end up with uh, a larger number of lies, even in terms of interstate relations. Let me give you just one example where massive concealment, I think, amounted to the functional equivalent of an outright lie. And that is the Eisenhower administration's account of the uh, restoration of the Shah of Iran to his throne in 1953. Uh, the Eisenhower administration, Secretary Dulles, Eisenhower himself, other officials, portrayed this as a genuine uprising of the Iranian people and the Iranian military against an erratic, increasingly autocratic, elected prime minister who might indeed have had pro-Soviet sentiments. Well, of course, what they forgot to mention was that the US CIA and British intelligence were involved up to their eyeballs in the so-called Iranian Revolution. And that without that role, it is highly improbable that the Shah would have been restored to power. Now, how is that all that much different from outright lying to the American people if asked, did the CIA overthrow Mohammad Mosaddegh, the Iranian prime minister, and you say no. The effect is basically the same. Now, I agree with John that the popular assumption about the extent of lying in international affairs is probably excessive. But the main reason, I believe, is another point that he mentions but does not stress and that is, even when it's feasible to lie, the costs may often outweigh the benefits. I think that's always been true. But in a WikiLeaks world, that has really become true. You're likely to be caught if you make a blatant lie. 
So the incentives exist to, you may pay, play a little fast and loose with the truth, but you're going to uh, try to avoid outright deceptions. I think that's also a key reason why officials in the United States are very eager to prosecute uh, WikiLeaks for espionage, and they keep sending aloft trial balloons to get the U.S. equivalent of the British Official Secrets Act so that they can cover up their lies and deception. The other point where I would have a quibble with John is his distinction between strategic lies and selfish lies. I would argue for politicians especially, these are not mutually exclusive concepts. And that politicians often simultaneously engage in both types of lies, often on the very same issue. For instance, with the lead up to the Iraq war, the Bush administration, and I think John is correct, told a number of lies that he would regard as strategic lies. But it was also true that President Bush and Karl Rove understood very well that by hyping the Iranian threat, creating this entirely misleading impression, that was going to benefit the Republican Party handsomely in the 2002 congressional elections. That, I would argue, is a selfish lie, not a strategic one. And again, both can be pursued simultaneously on the same issue. The most troubling aspect of John's thesis, and one that I think he demonstrates very, very clearly, is that democratic leaders in uh, democratic systems are more likely than leaders in autocratic ones to engage in systematic lying, and that governments are more inclined to lie about wars of choice than obvious security threats. And I think there is an abundance of evidence to demonstrate that both of those propositions are true. Well, that is tremendously troubling for the future of the democratic system in the United States. Because the United States, is, as uh, he has pointed out, over and above any other power in the international system, is not only democratic, but pursues wars of choice far more than any other country. Indeed, I would argue probably all other countries combined. And that has ominous implications, given the fact that foreign affairs and domestic affairs do not operate in hermetically sealed compartments. You get the pattern of lying and doing so successfully in foreign affairs, it becomes easier and easier and easier to do so in the domestic arena. Beyond that, policies adopted in the foreign policy arena bleed over into domestic affairs. Our growing national security state uh, affects policies ranging from tax and spending policies to airport screening procedures. And hyping threats and outright lying in the international arena certainly can have massive reverberations on the domestic front. 
As I said, John has written an intriguing and thought-provoking book. In many respects, it is the perfect primer for dealing with the topic of lying in both international politics and domestic politics. But as with most scientific and medical studies, the final line is always more research is needed. And I think that is doubly true here. His book raises at least as many questions as it answers. And that's why it is an extremely important book, a great contribution to the literature of both domestic and international politics. But there are some topics here that fairly cry out for additional research for more comprehensive treatments, either by John Mearsheimer or by other scholars. This is a target-rich environment and one that should keep scholars busy for many, many years to come. A final question, though, is if his thesis is correct, that leaders in democratic systems are more inclined, have greater incentives to lie than leaders in autocratic systems where the leaders have far more latitude. What does the rise and consolidation of the imperial presidency, what implications does that phenomenon have for the extent of lying? Does it increase it? Does it decrease it if a president doesn't have to worry about opposition from a wimpy Congress and a disinterested public, particularly presidents in their second terms who really have no great political incentive to worry about the consequences of lying except in terms of their own political legacy. Again, most interesting questions, questions that occurred to me along with many, many others as I read through John's book. It is a very valuable book an excellent contribution, and I'm really, really pleased that he wrote it. Thank you. John, I'll give you your preference. There's a little bit on the table. Did you want to take any of that, or did you want to sort of try to touch on it as we open it up to questions from the audience? Can I just make one quick point? Sure. <clears throat> the other country uh, that engages in this kind of behavior is Britain. Uh, and we have fought six wars since the Cold War ended, and Britain has been by her side in all six of those wars. And I could tell you a story, I won't do it, about Tony Blair and the lies that he told in the run-up to the Iraq War as well. Very good. All right, I'm going to go ahead and open it up to questions now. Let me, the basic ground rules, please wait for the microphone. Please identify yourself and keep, please keep your questions brief and truthful uh, as near as can be. I see all the way in the back there on the aisle on my left-hand side, uh, just behind the light. That's you. Works since undergrad, I can't thank you enough. Um, we uh, come up on, I guess, the 40th anniversary of the disclosure of and publication of the Pentagon Papers, and wanted to ask you, Dr. Mearsheimer, and the rest of the discussants, how the Pentagon Papers as a whole would fall along that level of lies. Would it be a matter of strategic cover-up or nationalist lies, and what are the implications of that lie as a volume on subsequent U.S. policy? Thanks. It's on. You can just speak right into it. 
Well, I'm embarrassed to say it's been many years since uh, I read the Pentagon Papers, uh, but it was very clear at the time uh, that the Johnson administration, this is the time the Pentagon Papers were published, the Johnson administration had told a series of lies in the run-up to the war uh, and in the conduct of the war. Uh, what was most salient to me at the time was that the administration went to great lengths to portray to the American people uh, a picture that said we were doing very well in Vietnam and that this was a winnable war, when on the inside there was all sorts of evidence that we were not doing very well uh, and that the war was not winnable. Uh, I think that you see a similar situation with regard to Afghanistan today. I'd be willing to bet a lot of money that the uh, conversations that are taking place behind closed doors in the Obama administration are much more pessimistic than the stories that they're telling to the American people. Uh, and again, this gets back to my basic point, which applied to Roosevelt, which applied to Johnson, which applies to uh, Bush and, and now to Obama, that in the American system there are very powerful incentives uh, to want to spin and, and to lie uh, and to avoid telling the truth when it's going to do damage uh, to the war effort and uh, also, as Ted points out, when it might do damage to your own political standing as well. Let's go, uh, John Mueller, right there, uh, right on the end. John Mueller, Ohio State. Uh, would you uh, talk a little bit about perhaps the quintessential liar of the 20th century, namely Adolf Hitler? Uh, in virtually every foreign policy speech he made in the 1930s, he talked about how he loved peace and how he hated war, and uh, even uses racism to say he wouldn't go to war because he'd just get a bunch of uh, inferior races in his new empire. And uh, some of that was directed abroad, of course, but much of it was directed toward the German people. Um, and so consequently, uh, it would suggest that even uh, autocrats frequently have uh, a necessity to create lies. Yeah, uh, let me make a couple points on that. First of all, I noted in the book that the distinction between democratic leaders uh, and autocrats is not as sharp as one might think at first glance, because we live in the age of nationalism, and nationalism, as you know, is all about popular sovereignty. So even an autocrat like Adolf Hitler has to pay attention to what his public thinks. And there's this German historian who's written this excellent biography on Hitler named Ian Kershaw, who has written a series of books that show quite clearly that Hitler himself and Joseph Goebbels paid enormous attention to monitoring German public opinion. And every move they made took into account what the German public thought. So what you see is that in this non-democratic system, and it was clearly a non-democratic system, because of nationalism, because of popular sovereignty, even Adolf Hitler had to care about what the German public thought. But I would argue that Hitler had a lot more maneuver room, nevertheless, than, say, Churchill did or Roosevelt did. But I think your point is on the money. With regard to Hitler's lies, there are a number of his lies that I describe in the book. And as John points out, there's no question that he was, should we say, a big liar. Uh, 
I think that his lies were somewhat effective. Uh, at the time of Munich, uh, he said to the British and the French, who were his principal interlocutors, of course, that if you give me the Sudetenland, that's all I want, and I will not ask for any more. And of course, the British and the French were very ambivalent about the Sudetenland because it was filled with Germans. They believed in national self-determination, and they thought that putting Germans under one roof made a certain amount of sense. And if he said this was all he wanted, uh, maybe that would be true, and maybe it therefore made sense to cut the deal that would give him the Sudetenland. So I think that his lies at the time, and it was obviously a lie because, as you all know, in March 1939, he took the rest of Czechoslovakia, and then in September 1939, he invaded Poland, and it was on from there. So he was clearly lying. I mean, he was a congenital aggressor of the First Order, as you have written about. Uh, so there's no doubt about that. And he lied, and I, I think he was somewhat successful. He lied at the time of the Rhineland as well. Uh, to inflate his military capability so that the British and French would not contest him when he remilitarized the Rhineland in March 1936. Uh, so I think he was a person uh, who uh, was quite successful uh, at lying, and it helped him somewhat. But uh, his real key to success was not lying. All right, let's see. Uh, let's go right here, the convenience button, second row. Um, Mr. Mirsharma, you mentioned at the beginning that it's a mostly utilitarian analysis, and I think that's good. Probably it's uh, more useful when, when you take that approach, but I wonder if you can speak to the moral implications of having a foreign policy that is based on lying to this extent. And the two big cases you mentioned, Vietnam and Iraq, uh, two endeavors with just dizzying levels of uh, human costs. So I wonder if you can comment on that, despite your disclaimer at the beginning. Yeah, I don't have a good answer to that, uh, because I've not thought long and hard about it. I think implicitly what I'm saying, I didn't want to say this explicitly, but I think implicitly what I say in the book is that it's OK to lie uh, if it is for good strategic reasons. Uh, I think that some of the comments, the excellent comments that were directed at me, made the point that if you're going to lie, you want to make sure there are compelling strategic reasons. Uh, I gave a talk on this book in Denmark, and Ole Weber, uh, who's probably the most famous IR theorist in Denmark, he made the very interesting point that he said to me, you know, you may find this surprising, John, but I, I can accept my leaders lying to me. Uh, but he said, I would put a much finer um, edge on it than you do. And I would demand that they only be able to lie when the survival of the state is at risk, right? In other words, I think he was saying that the only instance where it is justifiable from a moral and a utilitarian point uh, is when your survival is at risk. And by the way, for those of you who have read Michael Walzer's book, Just and Unjust War, right, he has that escape clause at the end where he says you can basically throw the previous, you know, 450 pages out the window and do whatever you have to do 
if your survival is at risk, okay? And I think that's what Ole Weber was saying. And the more I thought about it, the more I wish he had made that point to me before I had written the book because I would have uh, integrated it into the text. But as the text is written, uh, my basic argument is that, and this is what you would expect from a card-carrying realist like me, is that in international politics, which is a nasty and dirty business, states sometimes, not often, but sometimes have to lie uh, for purposes of the national interest. And that's just the way it is. And the moral considerations be damned. I think that's the argument I'm making, but was afraid to say explicitly. <laughs> All right. Let's go uh, right back there on the left in the front of the back, as it were. Hi, thank you so much for being here. Um, my name is Lisa Hansen. I just graduated from SICE down the road. And because of that, I haven't yet had an opportunity to read the book. Um, so I apologize if this was mentioned in the book. But I was interested to know um, your take. One thing I haven't heard mentioned is the role of the media and the free press. Um, because it seems to me that has a lot to do with lying versus and or truth telling um, the extent to which um, the lies can be exposed. And along those lines, I would tend to think that lying will perhaps, maybe this is an optimistic, but um, perhaps decrease because we, we look at, say, the Middle East and the Arab Spring and the, um, the extent to which social media and the propaganda is no longer effective when there are so many means of conveying information of what's going on rather than the official narrative. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and uh, I, I've thought a lot about that. Um, uh, the whole subject of the marketplace of ideas and how you make foreign policy in a democracy is one that fascinates me. And I'm sad to say I've become more jaded with time. Um, I used to believe that we almost all the time had a quite formidable marketplace of ideas, and especially given all the think tanks like Cato down here in Washington, all the universities and the free press, and so forth and so on. You could have a healthy debate uh, on most issues. I've begun to doubt that. And one of the principal reasons which gets to your question is I, first of all, don't think that we have a press that does a very good job of challenging power. Uh, I think that the mainstream media in this country is, to be honest, rather pathetic. Uh, I think the mainstream media's performance in the run-up to the Iraq war was disgraceful. Michael Massing has told the story in considerable detail in the pages of the New York Review of Books. Uh, but I think that for the marketplace of ideas to work, and for us to have a system uh, where uh, the powers to be really do have to justify what they're doing and do have to make uh, a persuasive case, it's imperative that you have uh, an independent media uh, that is willing to challenge authority. Uh, and we do not have that. I would note, by the way, that universities serve that same purpose. One of the principal reasons that you have universities and you have a tenure system is so that university professors can say, 
controversial, maybe even outrageous things, and they can't be removed from their position. Uh, I mean, I think when the Founding Fathers set up this country, they were right on the money when they talked about the importance of checks and balances. You don't want to let any single person or group of people run the country without being challenged at every turn. And when you start thinking about the imperial presidency today, just how weak need the media is, and then to go to the academy, most of my colleagues in the academy are out in cloud cuckoo land, right? <laughs> uh, it's rather pathetic uh, to read what they write. That assumes that you can decipher most of it. Uh, so I think, I think we have uh, real problems today uh, with uh, our, our debates, our, our public policy debates, uh, not only about foreign policy, but also about economic policy. And Ted, you wanted to get in on that, I think. Yeah. Uh, when the political elite is divided on a foreign policy national security issue, uh, as it was during the latter stages of the Vietnam War and starting about midpoint in the Iraq mission, uh, the mainstream media will play a constructive role and ask some hard questions. When the political elite is united behind a policy, even if you have the general public skeptical or hostile, most members of the mainstream media serve as stenographers or megaphones for the administration. And it's one of the reasons why policymakers are not at all pleased about the advent of bloggers challenging the, uh, the monopoly of the mainstream media, because that is much harder to control. Trevor, this is all sort of right in your wheelhouse. Did you want to get in on this, or shall yeah. I just commend your article to everyone? There we go. Just all right. Sight and move on. A Bear in the Woods, Security Studies, 2007. Uh, everyone should read that article. Uh, do we have more questions? We have a question down in the front. Sorry. Uh, th th thank you, uh, Dr. Mersheimer. Um, just a quick question. Um, a couple of days ago, I was going through the uh, Jimmy Carter uh, memoir uh, for some research I'm doing, and it struck me that he makes quite a big deal of saying that he's going to be you know, an honest president and I, I am paraphrasing from memory now, but it's something along the lines of, if I ever lie to the American public, you can throw me out of office. So I guess I was just interested in how much you think he lives up to that, uh, that kind of uh, statement and that kind of discourse. Um, is he an anomaly, or is he a stereotypical lying president? <coughs> Thank you. Yeah, uh, let me uh, answer that by first going back uh, to Trevor's excellent comments, and especially his first comment about the marketplace of ideas, if you remember, he said that he thought there was a lot more uh, lying, a lot more deception in uh, our debates uh, than uh, my uh, perspective allowed for. And the point I would make is I think there is a lot of spinning and a lot of concealment. And my argument is that lying is different than concealment and spinning. What I didn't say, and I should have said when I was talking, is that to call somebody as a liar is a really terrible thing, right? And the argument I was trying to make is that there's something special about lying. We spin all the time, if you think about it. Spinning is part of the warp and woof of daily life for all of us. We all engage in deception in our everyday life. 
the library is filled with books dealing with deception in international politics, which is concealment uh, and spinning. But there's nothing that I could find that dealt with lying. And lying is just one of those things that is something terrible about it. So, so that's what I was getting at. Now, the reason I raise the point is because it deals with Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter, like I think almost all presidents, does not want to think of himself as a liar. The case I talk about in the book is Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower, who went to West Point, was a very honorable person and really believed in truth-telling, much like Jimmy Carter, lied through his teeth at the time of the U-2 incident. For those of you who are too young to remember, the U-2 was a spy plane. This is before we had spy satellites that were up over the Soviet Union. The U-2 was a spy plane, uh, and one of them was shot down in 1960. Uh, and the pilot was a man named Gary Powers. And Eisenhower was told that the plane had a self-destruct mechanism that would destroy not only the plane, but destroy Gary Powers, and the Soviets would have no evidence. Well, it turned out that the plane uh, came down, Gary Powers survived, and the Soviets, unbeknownst to Eisenhower, had uh, the plane and Gary Powers. And Eisenhower, thinking that was not the case, told a series of lies and ended up with egg all of his, over his face. And it was terribly humiliating to him. He considered it to be one of the worst experiences in his entire life. And it was because he was an honorable man. He didn't want to lie. He thought he was lying for what was the good of the country. And, uh, uh, but he got caught. But anyway, I would put Jimmy Carter in the same category, right? Jimmy Carter, I think, is an honorable man. Whatever you think of him as a politician, I think he is a fundamentally decent guy, right? And by the way, I think George Bush is not a congenital liar or an evil person. I think George Bush did, in the run-up to the Iraq War, what he thought was in the American national interest. He was doing it for the good of the country. This is not to deny, as Ted points out quite correctly, that in many cases, maybe even in this one, although I don't know as much as he does, that there was some domestic political benefit for George Bush, George W. Bush, in the 2002 elections. Ted may be right, but, but again, I don't think he was lying for selfish gain. I think he views himself as an honorable man, and he thought that it was in the American national interest to wage this deception campaign to get us off dead center to get us into the war. So I think what you say about Jimmy Carter is hardly surprising, uh, and I think that, uh, except for one president who I think was uh, very wily and probably proud of himself for it, but would never say it, uh, that's the case. And that one president would be Franklin D. Roosevelt. All right, let's see. Um, let's go, let's go in the, let's take two at a time now. Let's go in the back and then come down to the front. Uh, since you mentioned Franklin Roosevelt, I was interested in how would any of you evaluate how honest historians, authors, journalists, researchers have been in dealing with the lies of Franklin Roosevelt, uh, particularly those leading up to World War II and the attack on Pearl Harbor. And there's another question. We'll take it uh, straight away down in the front. Uh, 
John Swallow, also on Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, I, I read a book, uh, uh, FDR and D-Day, uh, that had the premise that FDR, far from being surprised by Pearl Harbor, although he was by that specific instance, really, really wanted Japan to do something and to, to, to draw us into the war. And there was a colonel in Hawaii who had an eight-point plan, and they really did a lot to get Japan provoked to attack us on a surprise basis. And I'm wondering, you know, that, you know so uh, it wasn't the day of infamy was, was the day Roosevelt decided to, you know, take that, take that approach to Japan. Okay, any comments? Uh, I'll say a couple words. It's basically the same question. Uh, I believe that Roosevelt forced the Japanese to attack us at Pearl Harbor. Uh, I do, want to be very clear. I do not think he knew that the attack was coming at Pearl Harbor, but I believe that he forced the Japanese to attack. Uh, as I told you before, he lied about the Greer incident in August 1941 because he was working overtime in cahoots with Winston Churchill to get us into the war. And in the July to December 1941 window, he was squeezing the Japanese like crazy. And he knew that at some point the Japanese would have to attack us because they were so heavily dependent on oil from the United States and we have effectively cutting it off with the embargo. Uh, for anybody who wants to read a really superb piece by a first-rate historian that lays the case out, Mark Trachtenberg has written a chapter in his latest book, uh, and I can give you the citation for that if you're interested, and, uh, and he, he uh, lays it out there chapter and verse. Uh, and just to unpack this just a bit more so nobody's confused, Roosevelt was not interested in fighting against Japan. Roosevelt was interested in fighting against Germany. He really didn't care much, and the national security elite in the United States at the time didn't really care that much about Japan, which was actually bogged down in China, much the way we're bogged down in Afghanistan now, right? But getting Japan to attack us was the back door to getting into the war in Europe. And remember, we had a Europe first policy. And the reason we had a Europe first policy is that Nazi Germany was really the great threat to us, not Imperial Japan. But on the subject of lying, I know, I may be wrong, I know of no evidence of Roosevelt or anyone telling us any lies in that period where he put tremendous coercive pressure on Japan and left it with little choice but to attack us. So I think he was very Machiavellian. As I said before in my concluding comments, he is, uh, right, he is a really crafty and cunning character. There's no question about that. And he leaves very few uh, fingerprints. Right, The two people who are hardest to get a handle on are Adolf Hitler and Franklin D. Roosevelt. And, and I don't want to equate the two. And by the way, I think that Roosevelt did the right thing, taking us into World War II. But, but very hard to, to, to get a handle on exactly what Roosevelt was thinking and what he was doing. But I'm quite convinced, as Trachtenberg lays out the case, that he forced the Japanese to attack us at Pearl Harbor. Let's take another uh, waft of two. There was a gentleman over there whom I missed. And let's go uh, right here to the lady in the white. 
which are the lady in the white and the gentleman over there on the on the end. Thank you, uh, Professor Mishammer. It's an honor to hear you speak today. Um, you seem to criticize this war-loving expansionist U.S. foreign policy while also defending uh, lying if it serves the national interest. I'm wondering if you can shed a little light on what you think should be the U.S. national interest, is the U.S. national interest um, in light of what it is currently doing in, in the belief that it is in the U.S. national interest to be in the Middle East as actively as it is. Okay. So the ought part of the equation and right there in the end. Hi, my name is Gaston Leone. I'm from Metro State University in uh, Denver, Colorado. And you discussed earlier uh, situations where it's acceptable to lie. I was wondering if you had any uh, suggestions for possibly reform uh, to reduce the incentives for the sort of superfluous type of lying. Uh, just on the subject of what I think the U.S. national interest is, I'd phrase the question slightly differently. I think the question is, what areas of the world should we be willing to fight and die for? Uh, and what are the threats in those areas that necessitate us spilling blood and spending money? That's, I think, the $64,000 question. I believe there are only three areas of the world that are strategically important to the United States and therefore worth fighting and dying for. And those areas are Europe, Northeast Asia, and the Persian Gulf. And I believe that the only reason you would want to fight in those three areas is if there was a potential hegemon in one of the areas. In other words, one country that threatened to dominate the region and could not be contained by the other countries in that region. So in the 1930s, when Nazi Germany was on the rise, I would have stayed away uh, and I would have allowed the Soviets, the French, and the British to deal with Nazi Germany. Uh, when Imperial Germany was on the rise before that, I would have done roughly the same thing. The only time I would have come into the war was when it looked like the balance of power was breaking down and Nazi Germany was going to dominate all of Europe. Uh, and I would make the same argument with regard to a rising China. I believe that it's in America's national interest to make sure that China does not dominate Asia the way the United States dominates the Western Hemisphere. And I believe it's not in their national interest to allow any single country to dominate the Persian Gulf. However, to be very clear here, if there's a country that threatens to do that, I would prefer that the locals contain that country and that we do not do the heavy lifting. Uh, I'm not an isolationist. I do believe, however, there is a very powerful case to be made for isolationism, but I'm not an isolationist. But I'm about as close as you can get to an isolationist without being one, right? Because I think it's very important to minimize the number of Americans who die in foreign lands. Now, I have a number of friends who believe that those three areas of the world are very important, just like I do. And they believe that our goal should be to keep the peace in those areas. And therefore, we should station troops forever in the Middle East, in Europe, and in Northeast Asia. And we should be sticking our nose in everybody's business for the purposes of keeping the peace. I, I disagree with them. I'm much more of an offshore balancer, much more interested in getting out of people's faces and letting them determine their own fates and just making sure that no single power dominates any of those regions. So that would be my answer 
to that question. Uh, talking about reducing the incentives for lying, there's one very simple way to reduce the incentives for lying, and that's to have a much less ambitious foreign policy. And in fact, to go back to my answer to the first question, if you were only fighting wars uh, against countries that threatened to dominate one of those three areas, you'd fight many fewer wars, and most of them would not be wars of choice, and the necessity of lying would be much less. The fact is that we are an imperial power. We think that we have a God-given right to uh, run the world and to interfere in the politics of every country on the planet. I think Madeleine Albright put it correctly for most Republicans and most Democrats when she said that we are the indispensable nation. We stand taller and we see further. I mean, that means we got to be out there. Uh, telling people what their politics should look like and how they should run their daily lives and going in there and keeping the peace and knocking off bad guys and so forth and so on. And once you have that kind of foreign policy, the incentives to lie are enormous. Uh, and this is why I say, given the fact that we don't show many signs of abandoning that foolish policy, that we're likely to see a lot more lying over time. So for fear of turning this into a discussion that would interest me greatly, but would cause us to run over, any other suggestions for how to inhibit lying, particularly directed at domestic populaces, or shall we run upstairs and buy lots of books? Upstairs and buy lots of books. All right, books. very good. Let me thank you all for coming. Again, the books are available for sale upstairs, and please join us for a beer. Thank you. Thank you.